As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Salam alaikum, and welcome back to the History of Egypt podcast, episode 165, Praise Ra and Pass the Talatat. Today, we continue our coverage of Horemheb's reign, and one of his curious projects at Karnak Temple. To build his new monuments, the king destroyed a bunch of older ones. Why? This episode comes to you as an offering from Nathan, Steve, Evan, and Kat, who kindly donated to the podcast. Folks, you are too generous. Thank you for your support. To everyone listening, welcome to the show. Let's explore Horemheb's work, a demolition derby in Karnak Temple. The year was 1327 BCE, approximately. Regnal year 5 in the reign of Hor-em-Heb. Horus in festival, the king of Egypt, now ruled the Nile Valley and many other lands. His power spread to the distant horizons. His name was eternal. He outshone everyone. And you get the idea. Hor-em-Heb's regime was a busy affair. Early in his reign, the pharaoh initiated a massive building project. Great structures would rise at Karnak, the home of Amun-Ra. There, the royal architects were erecting magnificent pylons for the king of the gods. These pylons, numbers 2, 9, and 10, are impressive. They also have a curious backstory. In the 1800s, archaeologists began excavating the pylons of Karnak. They wanted to understand the architectural principles behind the construction, and more importantly, they wanted to preserve these monuments. 3,000 years had not been kind to the gates. In some cases, they had partially collapsed. So the scientists decided that the best approach was to remove the internal masonry and replace it with newer, stronger stone. When they did that, they found something interesting. The pylons are full of bricks, thousands of them. Under normal circumstances, those bricks would be large blocks, generally undecorated. But the bricks from Horemheb's pylons were different, much smaller, and they were covered with hieroglyphs and art. It seems that Horemheb had taken bricks from older monuments and reused them for his pylons. How many bricks did he take? Well, over the decades archaeologists extracted nearly 50,000 bricks from various older monuments. Apparently, Horemheb's builders cannibalized other structures to raise these pylons. Most of the bricks were talatat. 
This is a distinctive type of block, used in the late 18th dynasty. Talatat are small, generally about 55 centimeters long and 27 centimeters wide, an ancient 2x4, if you will. They are distinct, archaeologists can recognize them easily. More importantly, Talatat seem to be associated with a particular ruler. That ruler is Akhenaten. For much of his reign, Akhenaten's builders worked almost exclusively with Talatat blocks. We are still not sure why, maybe it was quicker and cheaper, but during his reign, Talatat were all the rage. After Akhenaten's death, these blocks quickly faded from use. The discovery of the Talatat, all 50,000 of them, was a remarkable find. It seems that Horemheb used the monuments of Akhenaten as a source of building material. Under his authority, royal masons quarried Akhenaten's structures and used that masonry to build the pylons. Effectively, Horemheb's government demolished Akhenaten's buildings for their own purposes. Why? Horemheb's decision to deconstruct or dismantle Akhenaten's monuments is curious, and we wouldn't know much about it without the efforts of an archaeological project. The Akhenaten Temple Project began in the 1960s and ran for a good 20 years, with smaller sub-projects continuing to this day. That project was wildly successful. Their efforts expanded scientific knowledge of this period, much of what I'm about to tell you comes from their publications. The Akhenaten Temple Project collected the Talatat blocks recovered from Horemheb's pylons, and slowly they began to organize them. The specialists approached the blocks systematically. They photographed each one to scale, they made precise measurements and recordings of the details. Wherever hieroglyphs or images appeared, they copied them, and organized them into categories. The work was laborious, time-consuming, and vital. Thanks to their efforts, we have a much better understanding of Akhenaten's monuments, and of Horemheb's demolition. Akhenaten commissioned several monuments in the area of Karnak. There were large temples, maybe a palace, and additional infrastructure and support facilities. The Talatat blocks seem to come from Akhenaten's temples, and scholars have identified four of these shrines. The largest temple was called Gempa Aten, or the place of finding the Aten. The second was called Hot Benben, the enclosure or estate of the Benben, a kind of obelisk. Then there was Rued Menu en Irten Er Nechech, or sturdy other monuments of Aten for eternity. Finally, there was Teni Menu en Iten Ernechech, exalted other monuments of Aten for eternity. You don't need to memorize those names, I just added them for flavor. But the Gempa Aten, the Hut Benben, the Rued Menu, and the Teni Menu were all distinct structures, elements of Akhenaten's building program in Karnak. Horemheb's builders dismantled most of them. The Akhenaten Temple Project measured, photographed, and recorded every Talatat block. As they did so, they noted the appearance of names. 
personal names like Akhenaten and Nefertiti, but also place names, specifically the names of the temples that Akhenaten had built. As they recorded these temple names, a pattern emerged. Akhenaten's shrines, or rather the bricks referencing them, seemed to cluster in different pylons. For example, blocks referring to the temple Rued Menu seemed to appear mostly in pylon 9. Blocks referencing the Hot Benben tended to appear in pylon 2. The same was true of art. Blocks showing Akhenaten's Sed festival mostly came from pylon 2, but images of Akhenaten's soldiers tended to come from pylon 9. Blocks showing Nefertiti by herself without Akhenaten seemed to cluster in pylon 2, but in pylon 9, blocks showing Nefertiti presented her as secondary to Akhenaten. In other words, we seem to have patterns in the distribution of names and iconography. Working backwards, scholars can group their different blocks and the imagery together. From that, they could infer the rough style or nature of the various temples. That is interesting, because it gives us an idea of how the ancient builders dismantled those structures. Based on the distribution of the Talatat, we can guess that the royal overseers managed the demolition in distinct groups. Whoever was building Pylon 9 probably took charge of dismantling the Rued Menu, but the builders working on Pylon 2 apparently took charge of the Hot Benben, a temple where Nefertiti was particularly prominent. So there seems to be a pattern. Certain groups were in charge of dismantling certain structures, and then moving the bricks to certain pylons. These patterns are not absolute. Blocks did get mixed up, or moved quite far from their companions. Based on this, scholars can identify two phases in the job. First, a group of builders would go to the relevant temple, say the Hot Benben. They would dismantle that temple brick by brick, and they would move those bricks to a nearby area, maybe a storage pile. Then, when all of the bricks were gathered in one place, the builders would move them again to their destination pylon. Along the way, some bricks would get mixed up or moved in different directions so the pylon talatat do not correspond 100% to their original locations. But broadly speaking, there are some observable patterns. It seems like the demolition was quite orderly and well-organised. Personally, I think that is awesome. It's easy to get distracted by the big political picture of what was happening here. But for the most part, the dismantling of Akhenaten's temples was not a matter of high drama, it was a simple question of organisation. Like a pyramid in reverse, the builders tackled this challenge one section and one block at a time. So Horemheb's masons deconstructed most of Akhenaten's temples. They took the bricks away and started reusing them. They did not reuse all of the bricks. Either they stopped needing them, or they didn't care to demolish the temples 100%. Archaeologists can figure out some of the patterns, but overall it's quite clear. This was a calm, orderly process. With that in mind, it's hard to say exactly why Horemheb chose this path. 
The idea of deconstructing Akhenaten's temples may seem dramatic, and the popular image of this is that Horemheb hated Akhenaten. In many accounts, historians will describe Horemheb as taking vengeance for Akhenaten's heresy, that the new pharaoh utterly smashed and destroyed his predecessor's work. That is possible, but I think it's more complicated than that. The legacy of Akhenaten is difficult. It developed over time, and it went in different directions over the generations. We know that Horemheb dismantled the temples of Akhenaten at Karnak, but what does that actually tell us about his motivations? Did he hate Akhenaten? Did he want to erase him? Or did he just want the building materials? This is a difficult question to answer. If Horemheb hated Akhenaten, we would expect that he would smash or erase every instance of that king. There is some evidence that Talatat, belonging to Akhenaten's temples, did suffer this treatment. Out of the 50,000 blocks recovered from Horemheb's pylons, a few Talatat do show evidence for deliberate desecration. A couple of cartouches are erased, a few images are chiseled away. So we can say that that happened. Unfortunately, we don't know who did those erasures. The vast majority of the Talatat are still intact, undamaged. Which seems odd. If Horemheb, or his overseers, had wanted to erase Akhenaten, wouldn't they try to damage every image or name that they could? If the desecration was official, a royal project, why would they stop after just erasing a few? Perhaps the task was too big. Or perhaps the overseers figured, well, the bricks are going into the pylon, no one's going to see them, and then just skipped over the damage part. That is definitely possible. Horemheb's agents might be responsible for the damage, but perhaps they were too lazy to finish the job. However, I think we should avoid jumping to conclusions too quickly. Although the Talatat came out of Horemheb's pylons, that doesn't tell us when the blocks were defaced. Akhenaten's temples had stood for almost 30 years by the time Horemheb claimed power. That is a long time, and if somebody had an axe to grind, they had ample opportunity to deface Akhenaten's temple. With that in mind, I'm hesitant to say that Horemheb both defaced the Talatat blocks and used them in his pylon. It's possible that many of them were already damaged thanks to earlier independent actions. Another case of destruction was Akhenaten's statues. One of his temples, the Gempa Aten, had decoration in the form of colossi, larger-than-life-sized images of the king and Nefertiti. When Horemheb's builders came to the Gempa Aten and started deconstructing it, they would have had to deal with those statues. What did they do here? Well, again, it's complicated. Archaeologists found these statues when excavating the area of Gempa-Aten. The monumental figures of Akhenaten emerged from the mud in pieces. The statues were not intact, not left together. On the surface, that may sound like desecration. It is easy to imagine a group of righteous workers hauling at the ropes and tearing down the heretic. In some cases, that does seem the case. A few of the colossi have marks from hammers or chisels. 
attacks to the face here and there. So that scenario may have played out a couple of times. But surprisingly, many of Akhenaten's statues are not damaged. They're in pieces from collapsing, but the faces, features, and cartouches are all intact. In this case, it seems like the builders took the statues down while they were dismantling the temples, but they did so carefully and did not attack the image. As a result, some of Akhenaten's colossi are vandalized, but others are perfectly fine. The process of demolition resulted in the statues breaking up, and the builders may have used parts of these for masonry. But when the stone was unusable due to its shape or condition, they simply left them in the dirt. Again, this makes it complicated to assign blame. If Horemheb's builders had deliberately smashed these statues, either from hatred of Akhenaten or attempting to reuse the stone, we would expect pieces of these statues to show up in Horemheb's pylons. But to the best of my knowledge, they don't. Akhenaten's statues came down, but for the most part, the builders left them where they fell. This leaves a lot of question marks. What actually happened on that day? Did the builders come to Akhenaten's temple with violence in their hearts? Or did they simply do their job, leave the parts that they couldn't use, and carry on working? If you put it all together, we have an interesting situation. Horemheb took the Talatat bricks, the building blocks from Akhenaten's temple. In the process, his masons naturally deconstructed those shrines, removing almost all of the stone. However, we really can't be sure if the masons also damaged the temples. There are a couple of erasures, and some of the statues are defaced. But did Horemheb's builders do that? Or did it happen earlier, in the decades between the temple's construction and Horemheb's ascent? On current evidence, I think it's hard to say either way. Okay, so we don't know that Horemheb tried to erase Akhenaten, not for sure. We know that he took the bricks, but the damage could have happened earlier. That's not very satisfying as far as answers go. Don't we have anything more than maybes and uncertainties? What about something positive? Is there any evidence for Horemheb engaging with Akhenaten, or his legacy, in a more direct fashion? Well, yes, actually. After the break, we will see evidence for Horemheb contributing to one of Akhenaten's monuments. The new pharaoh shows up in an unexpected location, and texts from Horemheb's reign might give an indication to his larger attitudes at the time. That is after the break. See you in a moment. Was the Sphinx 10,000 years old? Were there serial killers in ancient Greece and Rome? What were the lives of transgender, intersex, and non-binary people like in the ancient world? We're Jen. And Jenny. From Ancient History Fangirl. We tell you true stories and tall tales of the ancient world. Sometimes we do it tipsy. Sometimes we have amazing guests on our show. Historians like Barry Strauss, podcasters like Liv Albert, Mike Duncan, and authors like Joanne Harris and Ben Aronovich. 
We take you to the top of Hadrian's Wall to watch the Roman Empire fall at the end of the world. We walk the catacombs beneath the Temple of the Feathered Serpent under Teotihuacan. We walk the sacred spirals of the Nazca Lines in search of ancient secrets. And we explore mythology from ancient cultures around the world. Come find us at ancienthistoryfangirl.com or wherever you get your podcasts. The year was roughly 1327 BCE, regnal year 5 of Horemheb. The new king was settled into power, and his relationship with the gods was well established. Previously, we have seen Horemheb engaging with Amun-Ra, king of the gods, and Horus, king of the earth. Amun-Ra had given Horemheb his crowns in a magnificent ceremony at Karnak. Horus, meanwhile, had guided Horemheb from his birth to the assumption of his power. Officially, Horemheb was beloved of these gods. It goes beyond simple pageantry, though. Some of Horemheb's texts indicate his larger religious ideals. In his coronation inscription, Horemheb emphasized the importance of Amun-Ra as a source of his authority. Describing events after his coronation, the king revealed Amun's gifts the powers and dominions that Amun would give to the pharaoh. On this subject, Horemheb said, Then the person of this noble god, Amun, king of the gods, went out from the palace, his son Horemheb before him. He went in order to give to Horemheb that which the Aten encircles. The nine bows were beneath Horemheb's feet. The sky was in festival, the earth was in a state of joy, and the Enneads of the beloved land, their hearts were sweet. End quote. Amun gave to Horemheb that which the Aten encircles. You can read this a couple of ways. On the one hand, it quietly indicates that the sun god Aten was returning to his older, secondary status. Amun had the authority to give Horemheb that which Aten encircled, the dominion of Aten, if you will. So at least in this declaration at Karnak, Amun was supreme once more. The spectre of Akhenaten's reforms was starting to fade. Simultaneously, the declaration gave Horemheb a special role. As Amun had given him that which the Aten encircles, i.e. the world, one might see Horemheb as the caretaker for Aten's dominion. If Aten was the sun specifically the light emanating from the sun, then Horemheb was now responsible for everything that light touched. Amun had given him this power, and Horemheb had a new obligation. He was the caretaker of the sunlit world. As the servant of Ra, his beloved, and ruler of all that Aten encircles, Horemheb was obliged to support the god and his various manifestations. The king was happy to do this, when making his royal names, he had chosen the identity of Joser Keperu Ra, the forms of Ra are sacred. Horemheb had made his pledges right out the gate, and through his reign, he would support Ra in all of his forms. That included Aten. At some point during his reign, Horemheb came to a city, a royal city, Recently abandoned, but once the centre of power, politics, and religious life, 
Horemheb came to Arket Aten, the horizon of Aten. Known as Amarna today, Arket Aten had been the royal residence of the so-called heretic pharaoh. Akhenaten had established the city for his benefit and the glory of his god, Ra Horakti, in his name of Shu, the light which is in the Aten. Akhenaten had built Akhet Aten to that god's magnificence. And while the pharaoh was now long dead, Horemeb still had business with the city. Horemheb came to Akhet Aten in piety. He came to the temples which served the great god. There, the pharaoh commissioned small monuments, donations for the sun. In the early 20th century, archaeologists were exploring Akhet Aten, Amana, and amidst the sand and rubble of centuries, they found objects bearing the name of Horemheb. These discoveries were a surprise. Scholars had long assumed that Horemheb was the great enemy of Akhenaten. To them, Horemheb was probably the pharaoh most responsible for destroying the heretic. And yet, in the dust of Arket Aten, they found offerings from Horemheb. The first item was a statue. Well, the base of a statue. A lump of stone that originally supported a large image. It may have been a sphinx a common symbol for the sun god and its worship. Whatever the statue was exactly, its ownership was clear. A line of hieroglyphs around the base proclaimed, quote, The king of southern and northern Egypt, ruler of the nine bows, lord of the two lands, Djoser Keperu Ra, Setep En Ra, the son of Ra of his body, his beloved, Horemheb. Another lump, maybe from a column, referenced the king as Horemheb, beloved of Amun, given life like Ra. And another piece referenced a part of Horemheb's names as Pharaoh, specifically the phrase Wer en Biaud, great of marvels. Putting these pieces together, we can see that Horemheb contributed to the Temple of Aten. This discovery is significant. It tells us that more than a decade after Akhenaten's death, the sun god remained important. His temple continued to operate, and the city of Amana had some life left in its bones. Curious. Horemheb's donations to Aten remind us of something important. Today, many people associate that god with Akhenaten. The two can seem inseparable. That is understandable, but it's not quite accurate. To the ancients, Aten had always been legitimate. He was part of the divine cosmos, since the old kingdom at least. King Akhenaten had gone a bit extreme with Aten, but those decisions were separate, political. The god himself, in his solar disk, remained vital and relevant. Horemheb continued to honour the god. So, we have an interesting situation. Horemheb's builders dismantled the temples that Akhenaten had built at Karnak. At the same time, the king contributed to the temples of Aten in Amarna. It's possible that Horemheb's builders erased or damaged some names and images of Akhenaten, but it's equally possible that they didn't, that they just took the relevant masonry. 
Overall, this leaves us with a difficult question. Did Horemheb try to destroy Akhenaten? I don't think so. Horemheb clearly viewed Akhenaten's monuments at Karnak as defunct. He was quite happy to unleash his builders on those temples and allow them to deconstruct Akhenaten's works. In that sense, we can guess that Akhenaten had become a political liability, or at the very least, irrelevant. Fifteen years after his death, royal policy had moved on, and the government was sufficiently detached from Akhenaten's reforms to treat his monuments with disregard. So from that perspective, it kind of makes sense. The royal builders deconstructed these monuments because Akhenaten was no longer relevant. His ideas no longer had currency. I want to emphasize how orderly the process of demolition was. From their ultimate locations in the Great Pylons, scholars can identify a pattern in the deconstruction. That tells us that Horemheb's builders organized this process, and they were restrained with how they approached the temples. They did not tear Akhenaten's buildings down, smashing the bricks and then carting them off randomly. No. They took the bricks down carefully, with a clear sense of organization. So that leaves historians in a tricky position. Clearly, Horemheb started something with regards to Akhenaten, but it's hard to say if Horemheb was really that extreme. He may have been happy to dismantle the monuments, but when it came to actually erasing Akhenaten, there's a good chance he didn't bother. Even though some of the Talatat and statues are damaged, we can't be sure if that desecration happened because of Horemheb, or long before he took power. All we can say is that it did happen at some point before those bricks were reused. On that basis, the best we can say is that Horemheb's project of deconstruction maybe wasn't motivated by anger or hate. It was a job that needed to be done. Finally, Horemheb did leave evidence of positive interaction with Akhenaten's monuments. He made donations to the Temple of Aten in the city of Aket Aten, Amana, but Aten temples existed elsewhere in Egypt. The fact that Horemheb made a contribution to Amana specifically may reveal his attitude. Perhaps he really didn't care about Akhenaten, for good or ill. Perhaps the new king of Egypt simply did what he thought was appropriate, or useful, in different situations. So, if Horemheb did not hate Akhenaten, what motivated him to deconstruct those monuments? There are a couple of possibilities. The demolition of Akhenaten's temples may have been practical, expedient. Perhaps when faced with a massive building project like the new pylons, Horemheb's overseers needed more stone than was readily available. In that scenario, Akhenaten's defunct temples may have seemed like a ready-made quarry. Horemheb's pylons demanded stone. Those shrines had stone in abundance. So why not use it? It is possible that Horemheb's great demolition was simply a practical measure, a grand cost-cutting exercise. We shouldn't rule that out. Alternatively, maybe the idea came from Karnak itself, the priests of Amun, 
who had suffered badly under Akhenaten's regime, may have encouraged this demolition. Perhaps those priests prompted the pharaoh, or his overseers, to remove the shrines of the heretic. That might explain why the Karnak monuments were deconstructed, but the temple of Aten in Amarna was left intact, and even improved. If the priests were responsible, I have to say, I get it. Akhenaten had attacked Amun quite viciously, and 20 years later, that memory was probably still relevant. Maybe the priests of Karnak wanted those monuments out of their backyard. That could easily be another motivation. I try to tackle these decisions, these policies, like an ancient version of a crime. I want to figure out what do we actually know about these events? When did they happen? And can we prove who was responsible? Looking at the evidence so far, I have to say, I don't think that Horemheb necessarily hated Akhenaten. Clearly, the new government viewed that regime as defunct, or at the very least, they considered his Karnak monuments to be defunct. But overall, I don't think the evidence points to hatred so much as disregard. For the most part, Horemheb left the names and images of Akhenaten alone. He reused the building materials, but he doesn't seem to have gone out of his way to destroy him. In that sense, I personally get the feeling that Horemheb was not vengeful, but rather apathetic. The pharaoh, maybe, was washing his hands politically of the error, and simply moving on. This is part one in my discussion of Horemheb's relationship with the Amarna period. Next time, we will continue looking at this question by studying Horemheb's relationship with other earlier rulers. We've dealt with Akhenaten, but there are other pharaohs from this period. The monuments of Tutankhamun and Ai stood tall in Karnak and the wider region, If Horemheb was intentionally removing all references to the past, what would happen to those rulers? We'll find out in episode 165. The project to remove Akhenaten may have started with Karnak's priests. Who else but the servants of Amun would have such motivation to destroy that king? Thankfully, the History of Egypt podcast has a far more positive relationship with the priesthood, I'm speaking, of course, about my priest-level supporters on Patreon.com. These fine folks contribute most generously to the upkeep of my work. To Kendra, Nadin, Stephen, Ashley, Kyla, Jason, Andy and Chelsea, Mykost, TJ, Yola, Terry, and Linda, I, my partner, and my coffee addiction, thank you dearly. May Rahorakti in the light which is Artin. Bless your days. And may Amun, the Hidden One, give you his greatest gifts. To everyone listening, thank you for joining me. I hope you've enjoyed the show.
My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States story. It's unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.